Okay, good evening. Let's see if I'm smart enough to operate the clicker tonight. Jonathan Kennedy, last time I taught, uh, was so gracious with me. He said, sir, it helps if you turn it on. So I felt really good about that. So thank you. It does help. So this evening, we are going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. And uh, as we make our way to the 8th chapter of Mark, uh, a little bit of an introduction uh, as we look at where Jesus was teaching. Uh, Jeremy taught last week. And uh, we know that Jesus was in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And they now, uh, as we look in chapter 7 and verse 31, we'll see that, uh, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So this evening we're going to actually find Jesus in the area of Decapolis. And we know that the uh, prefix deca actually stands for ten, so Decapolis uh, is actually a region of ten cities. That's, that's what gives it that name, Decapolis. And it was primarily a Gentile area. So it was mostly made up of Greek uh, people. So Jesus has just come from Tyre and Sidon, which is predominantly a Gentile area, and he's now moved uh, down and across the Sea of Galilee into, again, another uh, Gentile area. Uh, hopefully you can see that map, but the red dots actually indicate uh, Damascus is probably the most uh, recognizable one of those uh, cities of Decapolis. But there's another area just south of the Sea of Galilee there, uh, which is the city formerly called Bethshan. And we had the privilege of being in uh, Israel last week, and we actually got to visit the area of Bethshan. So a shameless plug for Israel. But that, uh, that city is most recognizable with the in the life of, uh, of uh, Saul. And King Saul's body and his son's bodies were actually hung over the wall of Bethshan. So just kind of an interesting tidbit. Didn't have anything to do with the teaching tonight, but again, a shameless plug. So, I've got it on. Okay, let's read the first ten verses together. In chapter 8, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their, to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. And they also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to them, he set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up the seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away and immediately got into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So uh, as we dig into this tonight, and we look at a few things that stand out to me in verses 2 uh, and 3, we'll notice that there's no real complaints from the crowd. We don't see anything that, that indicates that the crowd was complaining about the fact that they had nothing to eat for three days, uh, or they had fasted. But instead, we see Jesus have compassion. 
Uh, to me, what speaks to that is, is Jesus actually understands that they have physical needs even when they don't recognize it. And I think that's important as we look at our own lives to realize that Jesus knows that we've got physical needs. Uh, another interesting thing to that is Jesus also understands there's a connection here. There's a connection in us between our body, soul, and spirit. If we're made in the image of God, the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we also have that same kind of triune in us with our body, soul, and spirit. And Jesus knows that there's a connection. They've been getting spiritually filled by spending time with him for these last three days, and yet if they don't get any food in their belly, that spiritual fulfillment can quickly go away. I don't know about you, but I can sit in here on a Wednesday night, and I can get filled with Jesus, but if I go fall flat on my face in the parking lot, you're going to see a big greasy Jesus spot out there on the pavement. Like It's all going to go right out of me. And I think that, that kind of shows us that if we stumble and fall, we physically, we can actually stumble and fall uh, spiritually as well. So it's just an interesting connection to me. Another thing to pull out of there, in verse 8 we see that these people were filled. And the Greek word for filled here is chortos, which literally means to gorge. Jesus didn't just fill them. These folks were actually able to eat until they were gorged. They were overfilled. They sat down and had a tremendous meal. And as we look back at another spot where God provided food and people were actually gorged, if you would, let's turn back to Exodus in the 16th chapter. I'm going to keep you all awake this evening by, if nothing else, turning back and forth in our Bible. So in the 16th chapter of Exodus, in verse 12, we read, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the word there in Hebrew is actually the word saba, which means to be glutted. So here again, we've got a, another example of God providing food, and he didn't just provide a, a little snack. Uh, I was at a work conference this past year, and I went to a fancy restaurant. If any of you have been to fancy restaurants, you know that they give you these great big plates, and they put really little bitty food on it. So I, I, they had lobster tacos on the menu. I thought, man, that sounds fantastic, lobster tacos. It couldn't get any better than that. They bring this great big plate with the three smallest stinking lobster tacos you've ever seen. I was picking them up and like that, trying to eat these little bitty tacos. They were fantastic. I had to go out and get a cheeseburger afterwards to fill me up, but that's a totally different meal than what uh, God provided for the nation of Israel as they made their way through the desert, and it's a totally different meal than what Jesus provided uh, his people, the, the 4,000 that had gathered uh, to listen to him teach. So, again, just an, an interesting connection uh, to me to see how God provides. And notice at the end of that, he says, then you will know that I am Lord. So what did Jesus then do as he feeds the 4,000? What did he prove yet again that he is the Lord your God? So it's, it's even bigger than Jesus just giving a great buffet dinner. He's now proved that he is actually God in the flesh. Oh. Okay. Let's go back to Mark. In the 8th chapter, and look at verses 11 through 13. So picking back up in verse 11, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit 
and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. So uh, in the synoptic account in Matthew, if you would just turn back a few pages with me, Jesus, uh, we get a little bit more information from the pen of Matthew. In a couple different spots, uh, we see Jesus saying similar things. So in the 16th chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4, we see, And then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign. But he answered to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. You hypocrites, you, do not, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no one shall be given a sign, shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So here we see that the sign that we're going to be giving is the, the sign of Jonah. So what does that mean? Let's look really quickly. A few more pages back at chapter 12, and we'll get the biblical explanation of what Jesus had in mind. And in verse 39 and 40, we see, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation, you're seeing a pattern, seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to them, shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about here is he's actually going to be dead and buried for three days and three nights and then brought back up. And why doesn't Jesus just give him a sign? I mean, they're asking for it. What's the reason? Well, a, a month or so we talked about this, that faith is actually the evidence of things not seen. I don't know if anybody uh, likes magic, but boy, every time I see a magic trick, I'm so impressed, but I can't wait to see the next trick. And it's really one of those things where the, these signs are meant to, to build our faith and to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not to create faith. It's not to come up with it. We've got to actually uh, believe in this evidence of things not seen. And yet, you know, yesterday morning, I had the pleasure of leaving really early. And you can see the evidence of God all around us. We, we don't always choose to see that sign. We don't always choose to look around and see God. But as I'm driving, I see the stars in the sky, and then I look at the trees and the plants, and just to, to try to comprehend photosynthesis. That's a big word. That's a lot of syllables from a guy from a small town in Illinois. Um, photosynthesis. I think it's like five. Um, but, you know, we think about what plants do is they take in the carbon dioxide that we exhale and they take it in and they, they produce glycerin and then they exhale oxygen and how all that ties together. I mean, you, as somebody who's designed things in the past, you can't design something that perfect. Yet here it is, uh, the very God of the universe has put these things all around us for us to understand that there are signs. Um, we just have to choose to open our eyes to see it, right? So the ultimate sign, though, which is funny, because here the, here the Pharisees are asking for a sign, and in front of them stands the ultimate sign. He's right there. If you would, turn with me back to Isaiah in the seventh chapter, in verses 10 through 14. Now, this is 700 years prior to the time of Jesus. And these Pharisees, their job was to study and know the Scripture. So they certainly would have read... Uh, 
the scroll of Isaiah. And in verse 10, moreover, the Lord again spoke to Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, just to stop right there, was not a great guy. He was one of the bad kings of the southern kingdom. He actually put one of his children through uh, the fire, it says. So we know that he sacrificed one of his infant children. Not a great dude. And yet, here's this bad guy, Ahaz, and he says, And the Lord says to him, Ask for a sign. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask it either in depth or in the height above. So ask for anything, Ahaz. But Ahaz's reply is, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So here's this guy, not a great king, and he will not ask for a sign because he doesn't want to test the Lord. It's an amazing amount of faith from a guy that that didn't have a whole lot going on in a positive manner. But in verse 13, then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing that you weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat and that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So here's a prediction some 700 years before the time of Jesus that a virgin is going to give birth to uh, the Savior, Emmanuel. Here's the sign. The very sign that they wanted him to provide is right in front of them. And so often I feel like I'm like that. I ask for a sign, I ask for the Lord to help me with something, and then he shows me, and I don't really like that. Like, oh, could you give me another sign? Maybe something I like a little bit better? I don't want to go do that. Can I do something I enjoy instead? But it doesn't work that way, right? He's always got our best intention in mind. And in this case, he's got the intention to save the entire world. All right, back to Mark. And back to uh, the 8th chapter and verse 14. Our Bible drills continue. In verse 14, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have any more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? I believe the answer to all those would be no, no, and no. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, how is it you do not understand? I don't understand. So uh, let's dig into this a little bit and try to, try to unpack what Jesus just laid out. Seven baskets versus 12 baskets. Uh, what's important to note is the, the word for baskets, there's actually two different kind of baskets he's talking about. The first one is the word, I'm going to butcher this, kofanos, which is a hand basket, like a, a lunch pail, you can think of it. It was actually used predominantly by the Jews. Now, the second basket is the word cyphrodon, or spyridon. It's also called a large basket, and it's used predominantly by the Gentiles, but it's a very large basket. In fact, it's the same word that was used in Acts chapter 9, verse 25, when uh, Saul was being, it was, there was a plot while he was in Damascus to kill him, 
And uh, the believers got together and put Saul in a basket and lowered him down from the city. So it's a large enough basket to actually fit a man. Uh, we know that Paul wasn't a big guy, but it was, you've got to have a pretty good-sized basket. I have no idea if these pictures are uh, scripturally accurate. Probably not, but that's all I could find on the Internet. So sorry about that. Um, so we've got these two different types of baskets. So as, as Jesus first feeds the 5,000, we know the fragments were collected in the first basket, which was predominantly a Jewish basket. The second time as he feeds the 4,000 in the more Gentile area, they use these large baskets, which was more of a, a Gentile uh, area of Decapolis. Well, let's look at the numbers uh, really quickly. The number 12. The number 12 is actually the number of government or the law. So in Matthew 5.17, what does Jesus have to say about the law? So in chapter 5, verse 17 of Matthew, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. All right? So as Jesus is going to, to feed these people, and we're thinking about the physical food that he gives them, but he's also providing spiritual food, his goal is to fulfill the law as he deals with the Jewish people. Now, the number 7. What's the significance of the number 7? Well, that is the number of completeness. It's a number of completion. So our salvation is complete through the Gentiles, right? So Jesus first takes the word to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He first fulfills the law, and then salvation is complete. And if you look at Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So essentially, what we're, what we're looking at here, and Jesus is laying it out, I'm going to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and then I'm going to complete my work. I'm going to provide salvation the world. And in Romans 1.16, I put it uh, up there on the screen so you wouldn't have to flip with me anymore. But, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. So what Jesus is trying to explain with the numbers and all these different type of, of baskets, it's my opinion, he's basically laying out that, listen, this is the plan. You're seeing the plan unfold. It's going to go first here and then it's going to be completed with these Gentile people. All right. To kind of wrap this up and, and all this uh, back and forth through the Bible, I want to look at verse uh, 15 first as we, as we uh, finish this up tonight. And in verse 15, to read it again, then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I'm sure as kids we've all heard uh, the term, you are what you eat, right? We've all heard that, you are what you eat. Well, well that thing is, is also true spiritually. We are what we consume. So uh, back, way back in 2 Kings chapters uh, 5 and 6, if you recall with me the story of Naaman the Syrian. 
Now, uh, I won't make you go back there and go through the whole thing. I'm going to give you the Brock Ashley abbreviated version of the story of Naaman the Syrian. But Naaman was a high-ranking army official, and he'd come down with leprosy. And we know that leprosy is basically a death sentence. Now, Naaman, fortunately for him, has a young Jewish servant girl working in his household who says, there is a man of God from my home country who happens to be named Elisha. So Naaman loads up a bunch of treasures, and he gets permission from the king, and he heads over to meet with Elisha, the prophet. And Elisha tells Naaman, go to the Jordan River, dip seven times, and you'll be healed. Now, uh, Naaman's not exactly thrilled about this. Uh, the Jordan River is not uh, the cleanest place. It's actually completely filthy. So Naaman had no interest, but he gets promoted and goaded by his guys. Hey, listen, we came all this way. We got all this stuff. Let's at least try it. After the seventh time, what happens? The scales fall off. Naaman is healed. Well, he's excited. So he decides to go back to Elisha with all these treasures and present them to him. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to accept this stuff. I'm not going to accept what you brought. You're healed. Go back home. So Naaman heads back to Syria. But Gehazi, who's the servant to Elisha, sees all this stuff, all these riches that uh, Naaman has, and he decides to go and pursue Naaman. And he's going to, uh, he, on his way, concocts a story that uh, his master Elisha just had an unexpected guest. Boy, we could really use that stuff. Well, Naaman, he's thrilled. He was planning on giving it anyway to Elisha, so he sends Gehazi on his way with these treasures back to Elisha's house. Naaman, uh, Elisha, or excuse me, Gehazi then hides uh, the treasures in the house of Elisha, and Elisha asks him about it. Where have you been? Oh, as the Lord lives, I've been right here. And he says, don't you know my heart went with you? And now this leprosy that was on Naaman is now going to be on you and to me what's also key on your descendants. So Gehazi, in an effort to gain wealth, and probably in, in Gehazi's defense, probably wasn't all just for him. He probably looked around and thought, boy, this stuff would be nice for this household. But he went after the riches of the world, and what he brought back was death. Not only on him, but on his household. So as we look at, at our pursuit of the bread of this world, we've got to be very careful. And I look at my own life, you know, what, if we are what we eat, what we consume, both spiritually and physically, is ultimately what we're going to be. It's, it's ultimately what we're not only going to be, but we're, we're going to serve to our family. So if you would, uh, in Psalm 78, I'd like to just look. We, we touched on this in Exodus, about the bread from heaven. And in Psalm 78, in the 25th verse, we see just what was going on in the hearts and minds of these Israelite people in the desert. Now, I mentioned that there was no complaints by the Gentiles about being hungry, but in the 16th chapter of Exodus, we heard they complained. So they're complaining about food. They're worried about their physical well-being. And what's said here in verse 25 in the 78th Psalm, that men ate angels' food, and he sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the, to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought the south wind. He also rained meat on them like dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the sea, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp, also around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled. There's that word again. And he gave them to their own desire. 
They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Now, one translation, I think it's the NIV, even says, as the food is in their mouth, they were still craving. They're still hungry. Why is that? I mean, God provided this food from heaven, but the reason is they were all worried about their physical. They were only worried about what's going on in their bodies, right? And, and the, the bread of this world cannot ever satisfy. It can do it for a short period of time with our physical, but it can never really satisfy us. You know, when we were in our, our early 20s, uh, we were going to church, and we were uh, trying to do youth and trying to do all these things in church. But at the same time, with one foot in church and one foot in the world, uh, at least with my own personal walk, I found that I was consuming a whole lot of what the world had to offer. So uh, on Sunday, I'd do really well. And by Monday, things would start to slip a little bit. And by Tuesday, I was completely off the rails. And Saturday evening, it'd be, I'd be in just as bad a shape as I was the previous Saturday. Why is that? Well, my intake was all worldly intake. I was taken in the, from the music to the speech to the way I thought to the way I looked at things. Everything I did was of the world. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise that if we take in the world, that's what's going to be digested and then put back out. So, and if any of you are a breadwinner, and I think, you know, if you've got kids, we're all breadwinners to some degree, I think it's important to be careful of also what kind of bread we're feeding to our family. Um, you know, that same thing, and, and men, to me, have this way we compartmentalize. I don't mean to single out men, but, you know, we can compartmentalize in our own heads, and we can say, well, uh, what I'm going to do here, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt my family. Uh, this only really affects me. Well, what we see from the story, even of Gehazi, uh, it very much affected his family. He thought that I'm going to go after this wealth and going to go after this, uh, these things that should be a benefit, right? But what he did was he sold his soul. He gave that up uh, because what he thought was going to be a benefit actually ended up being his downfall. And, and what I find is we can't actually compartmentalize nearly as good as we think we can because at the end of the day, we ingest it, and it, it's going to come out in some form or fashion, at the dinner table, at the way we talk to our wives, and especially if you guys are raising young boys like I am, uh, they're watching everything I do, everything. They're taking it in. Whatever dad is ingesting, they're also ingesting. So uh, I'm very convicted by that as I read it. But on a positive note, let's look at John 6.35 and look at a different kind of bread. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35. And what Jesus has to say about this. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So the bread that we need to be after as bread winners is the bread of life. That's the bread that we need to be breaking uh, at our table, that I need to be breaking at my table. I'll, I know everybody here has got it together probably better than me. But as I look at the bread I need to break, it needs to be the bread of life. So how do we do that? How do we go about breaking the bread of life and enjoying the bread of Jesus? Well, I think the key to it uh, is in verse 2 of the section of Mark that we're looking at tonight. In the 8th chapter, uh, if we look at verse 2, at the end of it, 
Now they continued with me three days. So these folks spent three days straight with Jesus. I just came back from Israel, and for the first time in my life, uh, I spent 12 straight days in the Holy Land. And I'm not saying you need to do this in order to have a lot of Jesus time, but I can't tell you I've ever consecutively spent that much time in the Word, around the Word, and the, the spiritual blessing, folks, it, it's hard to put your finger on. Like, just to spend that time with Him. I, I think if we're to look at Jesus as a food, we can take fast food Jesus. We can go to rallies, beep, beep, cheap, cheap. You know, we can go through the drive-up. And I'm not trying to get too graphic, but if you ingest the fast food in 10 minutes, it's probably going to come out just about that fast. But if we look at sitting down with the Father to truly commune with Him, and what, what we are seeing here, if we sit down and take the time, it doesn't always have to be three days straight. But, boy, it could sure be an hour. I don't think I've ever in my life spent an hour with Jesus, and at the end of the day, worked 12 hours and looked back and gone, man, I could have got a lot more done if I hadn't spent so much time with Jesus. That Jesus time really ate up everything I was going to get done today. Most of the time what happens is I look at a 12 or 13-hour day ahead of me and go, I don't think I've got time for that. But at the end of the day, I look back and, and think, well, I could have made a little more time. I can see where I wasted time here or didn't do what I could have done there. It, it almost always, we, we can say, that time was worth it. And that's really the only way that we're going to be able to sit down and have a full-on feast with the Father where we can be filled, we can be glutted. It's not going to happen going through the, the rallies, fast food drive-up. It's just not. And uh, so I want to encourage you as, you as you look at your day, as you look at when you can, when you can spend time with the Father, that, uh, that, you, that we look back on this and remember that the only real way to uh, have the bread of life is to actually spend time with him. So, anyway, thank you. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to dig into your word. Thank you for what it means to us. Thank you that it is the bread of life. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that we do not have to be hungry.